Okay, so again, if you didn't get a handout when you came in, you can grab one uh, back there. This morning, we're going to continue our, our look here at the study of the, the Holy Spirit. As if you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at um, Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit. So basically, what I'm going to do is just be pulling parts from that book, and we'll interact with them and try to see what Ferguson is, is bringing out for us. So this morning, we'll be looking at the first half of chapter two, and that chapter is entitled The Spirit of Christ. As Ferguson begins this chapter, he does so by reminding us where we find the most concentrated section of teaching regarding the Holy Spirit, and that is found in the Gospel of John in chapters 13 through 16. And one of the main points that Jesus makes about the Holy Spirit is found in what he says about him in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. So you can go ahead and open up there, John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. And if I can have somebody read that for us, Josh, you want to take that? Thanks. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, thanks, Josh. No, notice what, what is said here, what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. What is he going to do when he comes? Just throw that out there for you to answer that according to that section. Very good. Good. So the Spirit is going to come. He's going to bear witness about Jesus, right? Now, that's legal language that is being used there, right? It's this witness mindset. And it really continues that theme that you see running through the Gospel of John, that, that Jesus is on trial, so to speak, right? That's the purpose of John writing this, is to convince his readers of who Jesus truly is. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that the first 12 chapters are referred to as the book of signs, because all throughout them you have this case being made for who Jesus truly is. And it's known as that because in those chapters we see these various witnesses appear to testify about Christ, about his power and his glory and who he truly is. In fact, if you know the end of the Gospel of John, you may remember that he says that he wrote in order to convince his readers that what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right? Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 31. You get this same type of language here. Somebody want to read that? John 20, verse 31. Okay, so these things are written, right? This, this account is written for the very purpose to convince, right? So it's a, it's a, we would say that the Gospels really are witness documents, right? They're testifying to the reality of who Jesus is, where this evidence is continually brought forth to convince people to do what? To make the right verdict concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how John closes his gospel. If you look at chapter 21, 
verses 24 and 25, it says this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? What, a, what an awesome way to finish, <laughs> right? I just gave you some, right? Actually, a small fraction, <laughs> right? The world could not contain the evidence that is there that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be. So John's gospel is written in such a way as to convince the reader with this mounting evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And his gospel carries with it that language of witness and testimony, which in in John's gospel, it actually appears more frequently than in the whole New Testament combined, this this language of being, being a witness. Additionally, John and the other apostles as we'll see in the book of Acts, are going to be sent out not only in Jerusalem, right, but by extension to the rest of the world. Right? We see that in Acts 1 verse 8 when Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right? So we see that these men will be witnesses for Christ, but, but even in this verse, if you notice that in Acts 1-8 there, we see how the Holy Spirit will be the one who really is the chief witness for Christ, the one who empowers them and works through them. Um, there, there was one of our, our seminary professors who said, the book of Acts should really be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than the Acts of the Apostles. Because it's the Spirit of God who is empowering them to go forth and do this, this work. We see this as well in John 14, 26. If you look back there with me, John 14, 26, where Jesus tells his disciples that the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And let's see, what, what, is, he get, what is he gonna do when he comes? Somebody wanna read John 14, 26 for us? How did they remember all that Jesus told them? Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit brought those things to their remembrance, right? As you think about, as you think about the Gospels, you're like, man, how did these guys remember all of this, right? There's your answer right there, right? The Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all that Christ said. He helped them, right? In fact, as we saw there in John 15, 26, he is called, what? The helper, right? That, that Greek word that is used there is parakletos or paraclete. Perhaps you've heard of that before. And that comes from two Greek words, one being kaleo, which means to call, and the other is para, which means alongside. So you take those two together and you have one who comes to one's aid or defense, It carries with it this idea of giving strength to another. In fact, in older translations of the Bible, and maybe maybe you have uh, this in in yours, um, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is referred to there as the comforter, right? And what's interesting about that is the word comfort comes from two Latin words, cum, 
meaning width, and forte, meaning strength, right? So to comfort means to give strength or to give aid. In this case, what's, what the Holy Spirit is doing as he comes alongside these men is to validate the testimony about Christ, is to strengthen them to understand the testimony of Christ. In other words, the Spirit would come to verify and to validate the testimony of who Jesus truly is. Really helpful. In our, in our confession, I don't have it in front of me here, and I don't know if anybody, anybody does. Um, in chapter 1, paragraph 5, I believe, uh, where, where, where it... Well, anybody have it, actually? Actually, somebody did. Read it, if you have it. Anybody have that or can pull it up? All right, I'm going to pull it up. Here we go. Yeah, you have it? On chapter one on scriptures? Yes. Yeah. Do it. All right. Josh is going to read this. I want, you to, I want you to see the role of the Spirit of God here bearing witness about the testimony of who Jesus is. It's, really, it's, it's written very well. Go ahead and read it, Josh. Maybe a little bit different from the one that we got in our oh. membership class. So okay. Modern. Uh, okay. It says, we may be moved by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Amen. Right? Such a, such a good, like, Right? You, you think about it like in witnessing opportunities that you've had, you like bring all this evidence to the table, right? And you're just like, man, I couldn't have not laid that out any better than I, than I did. And yet blindness still remains, right? Why? Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating that person's heart. And that's how we have that full assurance, right? Listen, we may not be able to answer every question that's asked of us about the scriptures and about Christ, but we know it's true. Why? Because the Spirit of God testifies within us of the truth of who Jesus is. And so that's what Ferguson is bringing out here. When we think about the Spirit of Christ, he comes primarily to point others to Christ and to show them who he truly is. Something else that's interesting to note here that Ferguson brings out. Look with me again at John 15, 27. So we read that at the, at the opening here. And what Jesus says about the apostles. Okay, John 15, 27, he says, and you also will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning, right? So the apostles and the spirit share the same activity, namely witness bearing, because they've both been with Jesus from the beginning. That is from the beginning of his of his ministry. They both share that same essential quality for being authoritative witness bearers. And that's important 
Because in Jesus' day, trials were not conducted in the standard way that we know them today. They didn't have lawyers like we do who would act on behalf of the prosecution or the defense. Rather, trials were conducted by a judge who would seek to draw out the truth from witnesses who came forward with evidence. Right? We, we see that principle back in Deuteronomy where the Lord says that it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses that every word would be established. And so in a context like this, an advocate or a defense counsel sought by an accused person was not a highly trained professional like we would see today, but rather it was someone who would seek to vindicate the accused by telling the truth. This is why eyewitnesses were so important then and even why they're so important now, right? That's the main thing. If you have an eyewitness, that's the most credible form that you can find. And so Ferguson's bringing that out here is that here, here's the role of the Holy Spirit. He is the chief witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here, he was the intimate companion with Christ throughout his ministry more than any other. He was a perpetual eyewitness, if you will. One of the church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, who lived in the fourth century, said that the Holy Spirit was Christ's inseparable companion. Pastor Des actually preached a message on that a couple years ago that you can go look up. I don't remember the exact date, but it was during COVID. I remember that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and this is why his witness is so important and why it's infallibly reliable. This intimate relationship is why we see the Spirit being referred to at times as the Spirit of Christ. All right, so go over to Romans chapter 8 with me, verses 9 and 10, because we see the Apostle Paul referring to this intimacy be between Christ and the Spirit, where, where the Spirit and Christ are virtually interchangeable terms. So look there with me, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. If somebody can read that for us. All right, so you can, you can see that as you just look at those two verses, this intimacy really of the Trinity in, in this verse and, and how those names are used interchangeably. And again, this highlights the important role not only of the Spirit in the lives of believers, but also in the life of Christ. And so, and so Ferguson rightly notes here that the ministry of the Spirit and the life of Christ has often been neglected throughout the history of the church. In other words, there hasn't been a sufficient enough a, uh, attention or mention of the power of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of a key passage that Kyle brought out for us last week in a slightly different context, but it, it's a passage that really highlights the work of the Spirit in the ministry of Christ. It's Matthew 12, if you want to turn over there. We looked at this last week, Matthew 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus speaking here, and if somebody wants to read that for us. Whoever gets there, go ahead.
by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, good. Notice here that Jesus demonstrates his dependence upon the Spirit, right? When, when he says, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons. We're reminded here of the humanity of Jesus and as the Messiah, the role that the Spirit would play in his life, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Several Old Testament texts shine in on this, on this reality of what the Messiah would do when he came and of the role of the Spirit in the life of the Messiah. So we're going to venture back into Isaiah. Okay, so jump back into Isaiah. Let's look first at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at three texts here from Isaiah that help us to see this. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Somebody want to read that for us? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, good. So, well, I mean, how, how, you can't get it much clearer, the role of the spirit, right, in the life of the Messiah when he, when he comes. And then go from there to Isaiah 42. Look with me at verse 1, Isaiah 42, 1. Somebody can read that when you get there. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Oh, I have put my spirit upon him, upon him, and he will bring forth justice. Okay, good. So I have put my spirit upon him. And then one more, Isaiah 61, verse 1. You probably recognize this one because it's quoted in Luke 4 by Jesus. So whoever gets there, you can read that. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are wrapped. Okay, good. So right, all those texts there help us to see why the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Messiah. And then in addition to this, we see the New Testament refer to the Spirit's ministry throughout the life of Jesus. And for this morning, what we're going to do here is just look at stage one. Ferguson has three stages that he breaks down of the role of the Spirit in the life of Christ. Um, This morning, we'll just look at at, at stage one, which deals with conception, the conception of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the growth of Jesus. In Luke 1... Ferguson brings out here that we read of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying to her that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son whom she is to name Jesus. Now, understandably so, right? She's perplexed by this announcement and responds by saying, how how will this be since I am a virgin? And then this is what she's told in verse 35 there in Luke 1. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, 
Ferguson brings out a few things here that I think are very helpful as we consider what Gabriel says here to Mary. First, notice that Gabriel said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, that's language, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, of what would happen when the Spirit came upon a prophet to speak in the name of the Lord or, or to a, a king. Um, you can turn back with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 6. And we can look here at verses 6 and 10, where you see that same type of, of language of the Spirit coming upon coming upon the prophet or the king. All right, so 1 Samuel 6. Somebody want to read verse 6 and also verse 10. Was that 1 Samuel 6 by chance? Yes. Maybe I had the wrong reference. 2 Samuel 6? <laughs> 1 Samuel 10. My bad. You were reading that. I'm like, that's not what I read earlier. First, you know, I was like, I don't know what that has to do with the... Uh, 1 Samuel 10. Thank you. You're probably reading that like, where is he going with this? <laughs> this is going to be interesting. 1 Samuel 10, verse... 6 and 10. All right. My bad, Crystal. Can we try that again? Okay, that sounds better. Okay. Good. So you get that, that same aspect of the Spirit of God coming upon them and, and doing so in a very powerful language. And then go over to chapter 16 here in 1 Samuel. You get the same type of language here being used to refer to David. So 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. If somebody can read that for us. Okay, good. All right, so you get that same, again, that same mindset there as the Spirit comes to empower here. Now, Ferguson also notes that when we see this message from Gabriel to Mary, it says the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Really fascinating what Ferguson kind of brings out here as he, he deals with that word overshadow and its usage in the Greek and how it's also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the way that it's used back in the Old Testament, that word overshadow, refers to the glory of God hovering over the people of God, right? You see this in the cloud of God's glory as he goes with his people, leading them into the land of Canaan. And then we also see this word used in Psalm 91.4. Go ahead and, and turn there with me, Psalm 91.4. And what you're going to see here is that this word is used to describe God's protective hovering over his people. And again, it has this idea 
of the glory cloud of his presence, which guarded and guided his people as they moved through the wilderness. Okay, so somebody want to read Psalm 91.4? Good. All right. So that word, he, he covers you is the same word there, that aspect of overshadowing, right? You get this protective-like uh, verbiage that is used there. Now, if you remember, I think this was not last week, but the week before, as Kyle walked us through Genesis, and we looked at the role of the Spirit in creation, what we had there was the Spirit of God hovering in this, in this bird-like way, right, over the waters at the original creation, and then also seeing the Lord hovering eagle-like over his people in the Exodus cloud. And Ferguson brings out here something that's really important. You can turn with me to Isaiah 63 as we think about this. But the one who led the people through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and fire is the Holy Spirit. Right? Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. Somebody wants to read that for us. Good, right? So you have that aspect of the Holy Spirit there with the Exodus account and the coming through the Red Sea. And then also he was with them through the wilderness, bringing them into the land of Canaan. So again, the, the, the purpose that Ferguson is bringing out here is this aspect of the, the Spirit of God overshadowing the people of God in a protective way to bring them safely into the land of Canaan. And so that same verbiage is being used here when he refers to Mary, when he says the, the Holy Spirit will, the Most High will overshadow you, okay? And that's in relationship to the, to the Holy Spirit. So that cloud that we saw back in the Old Testament, the cloud of the glory of the Spirit, reappears in the cloud representing the presence of God at the glory of the temple and also the, the tabernacle and also the temple, right? It came to be referred to as the Shekinah glory, right? The glory of God represented there by the Shekinah cloud was one of the features that was lamented as being absent in the building of the second temple. But it was one also, this, this glory of God, that the scriptures tell us would, would reappear at a certain time. As a matter of fact, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, and suddenly the Lord will return to his temple. You get this, this image of the glory of God returning. Now, when does that happen? Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament, he is that promised glory returning to the temple, right? You may remember in our study back in Mark in chapter 11, Jesus comes in riding on the donkey. And you may remember as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, what's the first thing that he does? He heads to the temple. And therein, the glory of God reappears. Only occasionally throughout the New Testament do we see that glory being made visible. Otherwise, it's hidden in the person, the person of Christ. 
and is seen only by those with eyes to truly, to truly see it. Um, again, only on occasion is it mentioned. Probably the most notable, right, is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And interesting, what happens there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? A cloud comes over and overshadows them, right? And then a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The one upon whom the spirit is resting and working through, right? So again, that motif runs throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And that Greek word that's used there in Luke 1, when it says the most high will overshadow you, it's only used one other time in the gospel of Luke. And where is it? It's in that section on the Mount of Transfiguration where the glory of God overshadows Christ and declares again who he is. As we bring all of this together, Ferguson brings out here that we have echoes of both creation, the spirit of God over, uh, hovering over the water, and also the Exodus. And both of these suggest that the work of the Spirit in the incarnation should be understood from a twofold perspective. So Ferguson brings out here this divine work and that it's first a divine work of new creation, right? We saw something very similar there in Genesis where, where the Spirit of God is hovering over, right? this kind of formless void uh, area. But he's working as God has spoken these things into existence. In the same way, he works upon Mary already existing in order to produce the second man and through him to restore true, true order and to bring to order the fullness that was there in the formlessness and the emptiness of the original creation, which Adam lost for us. Second, we also see it's the beginning of the work of redemption here, right? This new exodus that's going to take place. The spirit hovered over the true son of God throughout all of his temptations in the wilderness and for the whole life of his ministry. Care of God is expressed for him. We see that exodus motif when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son after he is sent there. And so that's been made clear, uh, been made clear for us. Now, the promise given to Mary, Ferguson brings out here, of the coming upon and the overshadowing of her by the Spirit has one specific purpose in view. And it's what we see there in Luke 1.35. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Right? So the function of the Holy Spirit there is to maintain the holiness and the sinlessness of the one who was to be born. The New Testament here, Ferguson brings out, I think again very helpfully, says nowhere suggests that this was achieved merely by the absence of the male progenitor, right? the one, a man and a woman coming together. The notion that sinfulness is the result of of intercourse or is passed on through the male rather than the female line finds no support in scripture to often therefore assume that the doctrine of the virgin conception birth is superfluous right or not needed but here's where ferguson brings that out nothing could be further from the contrary man if if it's not a virgin birth we're in trouble right and here's why four things i want you to write down here that ferguson brings out 
The action of the Holy Spirit points to the sovereign newness of the work that God is accomplishing. I'll say that again. The action of the Holy Spirit points to the sovereign newness of the work that God is accomplishing. Over in John chapter 1, where it's talking about the new birth, it says that it's not by the will of man. That's one of the ways that it describes that. Well, it's interesting. A lot of the early church fathers would look at that text and see how it first finds its fulfillment in Christ, right? That this was not brought forth. This birth was not brought forth by the will of man. That is by a man and a woman coming together, as is the normal course for everyone else. Both the late second century, in the late second century, Irenaeus and Tertullian, they would look at John 1.13 as referring to Jesus as the one born not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I think that's really interesting, right? Because when you look at that text, you think about the new birth and what that means for us. And that's absolutely true. But it finds its foundation first in Christ, the one who needed to be born this way, born from above, if you will, in order for us to be born from above. And so Ferguson looks at this and he said, man, if you, if you get rid of the virgin birth, we're in serious trouble, right? Because then you have Adam's line being continued on, and we have no Savior. Ferguson says here, while Mary is involved in the virgin conception, she is completely passive in it. Because it's the direct result of the mysterious action of the Holy Spirit. Here, over against the place given to Mary by Roman Catholic theology, the active contribution of humanity in providing salvation is nullified. Excellent point that he brings out there, right? It's, it's a completely passive work. Mary is told what's going to happen to you, right? She's completely passive in that, from that standpoint. And so, too, for us, as we think about our salvation and the role of the Spirit, Right? What happens is the Spirit comes and he regenerates us, awakens us, and in that moment we repent and believe the gospel. But we recognize it's a work of the Spirit. And some of us come to that realization later, right? We think we're doing that work. I'm repenting and I'm believing. Yes, but why? Because the Spirit of God awakened you to the reality of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and gave you the grace to repent and believe. So that's the first thing that Ferguson brings out that we have to understand and have solidified in our hearts of the work of the Spirit of God in this virgin conception and birth of Christ. Secondly, he says, the human nature which was assumed by the Son of God was not created ex nihilo, but was inherited through Mary. It's, in other words, what Ferguson's bringing out there, it's our human nature. It's, it's our nature that was subject to the pains and temptations of this life. And as such, his human nature needed to be acted upon by the Holy Spirit in order to be sanctified or set apart. Ferguson says here, while the New Testament nowhere further unravels what this involved, it is the central implication of the Spirit's work. Only the work of the Spirit 
Only by the work of the Spirit could the divine person assume genuine human nature and come in the likeness of sinful man, as Romans 8.3 says, and yet remain holy, harmless, undefiled, and be declared the Holy One. Third, he says this, the revelation of the virgin conception by the Spirit of God forbids any adoptionist Christology. And what he means by that is there was a heresy that would, would say that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism where he was declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Fergan says there's no room for that notion that the man Jesus of Nazareth becomes the Son of God by adoption. The reverse is true. The Son of God becomes the man Christ Jesus by incarnation through the power of the Spirit. The virgin conception, therefore, underlines Jesus' words in John 8, 23, I am from above, right? Perplexing statements, right? As they land on people and they're hearing this, what do you mean you're from above, (laughs) right? His birth also, therefore, is from above. And then fourth, He says the conception of Jesus by the Spirit underlines both his identification with our frailty and that he assumes our nature at its smallest and weakness and his essential distinctiveness, not in relation to the reality of his humanity, but in relation to his liability to guilt. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, he is the last Adam. He is the man from heaven. The work of the Spirit preserves both the reality of his union with us in genuine human nature and his freedom from the guilt and the curse of Adam's fall. Very important for us to to understand. Look at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. This is laid out most clearly, I think, probably in in this passage where we see that reality of Christ coming for us as the one who would earn for us what Adam failed to do, failed to earn for us, okay? So his humanity is is highlighted here, but the reality that he is divine is also absolutely needed. So Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Whoever gets there, you can read that for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men, because all sinned. For, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died from one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but, if there, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life Amen. Yeah, wonderful section there. Just how you see the contrast there between Adam and Jesus. Adam as the first man, Jesus as the second man, and what both of their actions, the effect that it had upon humanity. Ferguson rightly says this, really, really helpfully. He says, since his person is not of Adamic stock, he does not share in the guilt and condemnation of of Adam, as we see there in verses 12 through 14. Since he assumed human nature through the Spirit who sanctified this union from the moment of his conception, he was one of us and was capable of bearing others' guilt as one who was not personally liable for it. Were his origin from the earth, he would share in the guilt and condemnation of the earthly man. Thus, as the inaugurator of the new humanity, The second man is brought into the world by the Spirit's agency. His virgin conception is therefore essential to our salvation and was fittingly brought to pass by the Spirit who is the executive of that salvation. So I think Ferguson really brings out a massively important point that we don't want to quickly overlook, one that we probably know, but I think he really developed it well in helping us to understand how we should just rejoice over this reality as we consider the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ and then his, his birth. Now, I've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm going to have to kind of edit here as I work. Um, childhood, right? Ferguson brings out here, we don't, there's not a lot there, is there? Right? There's a relative silence regarding the development of Jesus through his childhood and adolescence into adulthood as well. However, what is said about him is very important. The little that is said about him is very important. Luke records there at the conclusion of the temple visit of the 12-year-old Jesus in Luke 2:52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, right? And, and that, that follows the astonishment of the teachers at the understanding that Jesus already possessed as this, as this 12-year-old, right? He's answering questions that are like, He's just silencing people as a, as a 12-year-old. And, and that, again, pulls back on what we looked at there in Isaiah, right? When, that when this one came, he's going to have this wisdom and this understanding that's going to confound others. And, and we see that throughout the scripture. So Ferguson says this. He says, this, this narrative that we see in Luke 2 doesn't stand on its own. Rather, it reflects the fulfillment of several Old Testament themes. The person who meditates on, loves, and knows God's word may have greater insight than his teachers and more understanding than his elders, as we see in Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. Such wisdom is the evidence of the work of the messianic spirit, as we looked at in Isaiah 11 earlier, that this one who would come, the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him It would be the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and power, 
of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord and one who would delight in the fear of, of the Lord. Ferguson says this then. He says, if we ask how the Spirit produced this in the life of Jesus, a partial answer would be along the lines of the words of the third servant song in Isaiah. So I'll close with this. Turn with me to Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. Okay, and again, I think Ferguson brings out an awesome point here. Think about this in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would be the fulfillment of this passage. Okay, so Isaiah 50, Verses four and five, I'll go ahead and read that and then I'm gonna have to wrap it up for us so I can get ready for the the service here. Okay, again, think about this from the perspective of our Lord Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught, right? So think about that from the perspective of the Lord Jesus, right? Each day growing in wisdom without any sin restraining, right? So just perpetually growing. Verse five, the Lord has opened my ears and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, right? Man, glorious, the fulfillment that that has in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself to the study and the meditation and the love of God's word unlike any other. And so it's understandable when we consider that, how he would be confounding people in the temple. Um, okay, so that's, that's stage one. Like I said, next week, we'll launch into stages two and three when we look at the baptism of Jesus, his temptations, and his ministry. And uh, we'll go from, go from there, okay? Thank you for your attentiveness. Yeah, close us. Father, we thank you for this time of study. Thank you for the ability to be able to see these things, to rejoice over them. And we are able to do so because of the Spirit of God who indwells us and who bears witness to the truth of these things that we have looked at. So Lord, again, we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to behold the glory of the Son of God. And we ask as we continue this morning, as we go into our corporate worship time together, that you would bless us to that end. As we look at this passage in in Mark 14 and we consider uh, this woman's devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ and we see her expressing uh, what she thinks about him and of his worth, Lord, just cause our hearts to soar uh, with the glory of, of our great God and Savior. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.